The title for today's sermon is God is the Ruler Yet. God is the Ruler Yet. And my hope, my application, my point for you really is just one today. That you, that by faith you would rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that He is sovereign even over evil. And so love all of God with all of your heart. It's really the one aim today. That by faith you would rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that He is sovereign even over evil. And so love all of God with all of your heart. You might know the song, This Is My Father's World. The tune might come to your mind. It's a sweet-sounding, tender song about the sovereignty of God. The first verse goes like this. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's a pleasant picture. The last verse might be more a bit of a test of faith for us to sing. Can we sing it with the same joy, the same vigor, or our hearts totally and wholly ravished by all that God is and all that God does. The third verse says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Is God the ruler of the wrong too? Job and his friends have been asking questions for quite some time. Is God fair? What exactly is God doing up there? Is He even just? We saw last week that God answers Job with a line of questions, teaching Job that He is wise and He is powerful in creation. God ordered the intelligence of the ostrich, you may remember. He told the seas where to stop. He lassoes star clusters 400 million light years away, and He gives strength to the horse on the ground. But all that stuff, as big and awesome and beautiful and wonderful as it is, it's all, it's all good. What about the bad stuff? What about the evil stuff? Is God the ruler of the bad stuff too? Is God the ruler over evil? I think in my time in pastoral ministry, that's, that I've been engaged in in some sense since I graduated high school, this is probably the question people have wrestled with the most. What about suffering? What about evil? What about this? Why is God doing this? God would not do that. God's not like that, is He? David F. Wells wrote a book in 2014 called The God in the Whirlwind. He noted a study that revealed, he says, the dominant view among evangelical teenagers, this was in 2014, that God is chiefly engaged in solving their problems and making them feel good. So do the math. These teenagers in 2014 are, you know, they're now making babies. Religion is about experiencing happiness, contentedness, Having God solve one's problems and provide stuff like homes, the internet, iPods, iPads, and iPhones. This is the widespread view of God in modern culture, not only among adolescents, but among adults as well, just based on responses from studies. Let me just ask you a question this morning. Do you want to know God? 
Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God as He really is? Do you want to know God like He really is or like you wish He were? What do you want from God? What do you expect from God? Be honest. Are you good with God just so long as He doesn't bother you? And when things don't go so well, you have a lot of questions. And David Wells concludes, we have come to think of God as our therapist. It's comforting, healing, inspiration that we want most deeply. So that is what we seek from God. That is too what we want most from our church experience. We want it to be comforting, uplifting, inspiring, and easy on the mind. Not requiring effort or or concentration. Those are not bad things to want. The Lord does give those things. The problem is not that God does not want people to be comforted, but it actually isn't that comforting because it's not actually God. So your idea of comfort that you will find yourself, that's your only idea of comfort, you will find yourself either so dumb to reality that you won't realize how miserable your state is or you'll be so anxious that you can barely stand to think while you're alone. What's missing in our quest to know God as He is? And largely today, in our culture, in our time, is that God is the ruler over even evil in the world. Not that there's an evil kingdom, and God is an evil king, but that evil is in the world, and that every suffering, and every trial, and every sorrow, and every providence Even sin in the world is underneath the sovereignty of God. And it is not as though there is God and He's really strong and God is in competition with evil. That God is really just trying to do the best to kind of bat away all the evil vibes in your life. Or that God is like your personal agent flying around making sure nothing bad ever happens to you. That's not God, that's Hallmark. It's not holy. As we get to the end of Job, here's what happens to Job. After all of his suffering, all of his debating with his friends, now in this hearing from God, Job comes to say, now I see God. Get this, the beginning of Job, Job is worshiping God. Job loves God. Job has God at the center of his life. But then Job loses everything. He loses it all. His house, his children, his wealth. Even his own body is covered with sores from head to toe. Sores that he scraped with Broken pieces of pottery to get some relief. Just a quick question. Have you scraped your sores with broken pieces of pottery just to get some relief lately? After all that suffering and loss, after all the philosophizing and debating between the friends about God's fairness and God's justice, and how he, could, how he would possibly allow this, God hears from Job and says, now I see God. Look at Job's response. 
the Maryland Red Forest 42, verse 5. This is Job's conclusion. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It doesn't mean that Job sees the invisible God. In several places, Paul and in Hebrews, God is described as invisible. It means that you cannot see him. Those in our John building block remember, may remember John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. In fact, what God has done in Job 40 through 42 is it to bring Job to seeing what he's done is actually speak. God speaks and Job goes from hearing to seeing in his own words. What is this? It's a poetic expression of magnitude and proportion. I just went from hearing to seeing. I just went from black and white 20-inch TV with an antenna to gigabyte internet streaming 8K on an 80-inch OLED TV. Now I can see. I just went being able to follow who's winning the game to be able to count how many blades of grass are stuck in the player's helmets. How did, God, how did Job get clarity about God? It came through suffering. And through suffering, Job started asking hard questions. He suffered God's providence for his life, and all of a sudden, he was not settled with easy answers. Suffering is a way God brings people from hearing to seeing. You want to know God. God will often use suffering as a medicine to use to heal our blind spiritual eyes so that we can see Him as He is and love Him. Job came to know God through suffering. Psalm 119 verse 71 says it this way, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Is that, is that not the testimony of so many saints throughout time? I knew God, but when I lost my mom, I really came to know God. When our house burned down, I really saw God's faithfulness. When, when I sinned so badly, it almost cost me everything, and God brought about great distress, it really revealed God's character to me. In our church, I can think of a few things that have brought people into a sweeter, closer fellowship with God based on their testimony and, and what I've seen. Things like not being able to have children. Getting cancer. Miscarriages. Being laid off from your job. Brain surgery. War. A financial struggle, and on and on and on and on. I've seen it over and over. The very thing that first makes them doubt God also ends up bringing them to their most intimate treasuring of God. What happens? You have to start asking questions about God's relationship to evil in the world. Is this fair? Where are you, God? What are you doing? I want to hear some answers from some questions I've never asked before, God. Where is God in the order of evil powers in the world? God's answer is that He's sovereign over chaos and evil. 
God is sovereign over it. Evil never merely happens to God. Situations are never brought back under control by God, as if He once kind of lost control. Think about it like this. There are times when I feel like I'm in control in my home. Usually that's just an illusion. There are times when I step outside for a minute and then I come back in and I realize sometime between the moment that I went from my front door to the yard and then back to the front door and came into my house, it had just erupted into chaos. And so it's my job to kindly and patiently and hopefully, graciously, not always so, bring things back to order. Do you know what? It never happens to God. He never steps out the front door and comes back in to say, what's going on in here? How did this happen? I cannot believe you did that to your sister. How did that even happen? It doesn't happen to God. He never loses control and gets control back, even when it comes to the evil things that are happening in the world. Oh, friends, you cannot know God in His fullness until you handle the problem of evil in the world. Where is Why is there evil? Why does God let evil happen? Is God fair? How can God be good if there's evil in the world at all? Or as Christopher Hitchens asked it, that now deceased infamous atheist, he used to ask if God can cure blindness, why are there still blind people? In short, what is God's relationship to evil? What's he doing? What's his part? What's his role? Let me just tell you that you need this deep doctrine, these questions undergirding everything in your life, even if it doesn't feel like it today. It's foundational to who God is in the world and in your life and what He's doing. John Piper puts it this way, I'm aware that these things seem emotionally distant and unrelated to the personal pains of many. In our quiet daily miseries of marriage or parenting or loneliness or sickness or depression, we may feel that all this talk about the grandeur of God is like trying to heal a bruised heart with a tire iron. I know that God is tender and that personal fellowship with Him is sweet and that touching the heart happens through the brokenness of the still, small voice. I know this and I love it. Jesus Christ is a precious friend to me, He says. But I also know something else. If while I'm having a tender conversation with my wife, a man breaks in and kills her and all my children and leaves me wounded on the living room floor, I will need a way of seeing the world that involves more than the tenderness of God. I will need something to help that make sense besides just God's tenderness toward me. We need someone to answer the questions that suffering presses. Well, what is God's relationship to evil? First, you need humility to start to see it. Before God gives Job any kind of answer by questioning Job, He brings Job to a place of humility about His own raw power. Job chapter 40, verse 6. Look at verse 6 through 14 again. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you. As one of our elders put it this week, God is telling Job to get his big boy pants on. I will, tre- I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that, that you might be in the right? Is, is that going to happen? That, that you're, you're going to be right and I'm going to be wrong? 
Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Rhetorical answer. The rhetorical question. The answer is no. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. And just go home. Tell, tell your spouse, tell, you, tell your kids, tell your neighbor, this is all my glory and splendor. I've mustered it all up. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Take him down. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God never acknowledges to Job that his own right hand can save him. Neither can ours. You can't, the whole point of this line of questioning from God to us is that we cannot do this. This is the starting place. You're talking to raw power, Job. Power. I mean, before you start talking about philosophical questions about how God, what God does, and does He cause sin, does He, you know, does He allow sin, does He permit sin, just realize God's power, Job. Can you save yourself? No. Watch, well, go and watch one of those videos this afternoon about the size of the earth in comparison to the sun and other planets and other stars. I saw something this week that said you could fit a quadrillion earths in the largest star that we know about. A quadrillion earths in the largest star. I don't even know what that number is. I don't know if that's true. But I know I can't even pick up 200 pounds without being afraid I'm going to pay for it at the chiropractor. I know that I will sit in a chair at my desk some days and from that I will go home and be so tired that I ask my kids to get my phone for me. Can you save yourself? Can I save myself? Powerless. First thing, Job, before I answer questions about sovereignty and evil and what I do, recognize I am powerful. Recognize your lack of power. Yes, God, you are powerful. Job's, it's like Job's, I can't even get my friends to, to leave me alone. You rule the wicked and the proud. This whole conversation has to start. It's a non sequitur that God is big and all powerful to save. And I am very small and I need saving. And then God, God begins to address the problem of evil. God begins to address the problem of evil. What is God's relationship to evil? Well, friends, God knows exactly how to talk to us. It's like it's too big just to say it. It's like it's so deep and so wonderful and so terrible all at once. How do you even say God's answer? This is how G.K. Chesterton described Job. He feels the tingling atmosphere of something which is too good to be told. The refusal of God to explain His design is a burning hint of His design. God never really tells Job why He did what He did in Job's life. Why Job? Why him? He didn't deserve it. Why did He take all Job's things? God never tells Job. 
The refusal of God to explain his design is a burning hint of his design. It is so sovereign and so masterful and so otherworldly. Job's been crying out to God the whole book, appealing to God, begging for God for a final decision about the evil in his suffering. God's final answer comes in the form of the behemoth and the leviathan. Isn't this great? We get to the end of Job. We get to the end of God's answer to all of their, their questions. God's last argument, God's big answer to Job, the end of the book, the answer to the question is these two, these two beasts, these two animals. And some over the years have thought that what God is describing in Job 40 to 42, which Marilyn read for us, is describing a hippopotamus and a crocodile. I don't want to be sarcastic, but the end of Job, God expounds on his great strength and wisdom. Does it make sense that he adds to the horse and the ostrich and all the other beasts of the world that the final persuasive blow to Job's weak theology, that the God's best example for his sovereignty, even though he's already talked about the stars 400 million light years away, the final best example is the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Friends, I don't think that either Job nor his friends or God are too concerned about the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Here's what I would say. The behemoth and the Leviathan represent evil. They represent chaos and darkness. They're pointing towards Satan himself. They're images with poetic meaning. Think about this. All of Job, all of Job, and now animals. I mean, even if it were whales and dinosaurs. Really? This is your last word? Secondly, God's already expounded on His wisdom and His power in His first speech. That was chapters 38 through 39. Look at creation. God is wise to put the hawk in the air and powerful to tell the waves where to stop. He's already expounded His power beyond any creature on the earth. And for God just to say, thirdly, for God just to say that he's really powerful over these beasts that overpowered man, they're not really answering questions about God's fairness, about why he's doing what he's doing in the world. The big problem is not just that God's not strong. The big problem is that evil is happening to Job. Is that evil fair? Are you doing something about the evil God? That's Job's and his friend's big question. And fourthly, the features really don't match normal animals. I don't know if you noticed that. In verse 418, the beast sneezes lightning and breathes fire. It's like a super beast. It's not in line with normal creation capabilities. I've been to a lot of zoos, never seen hippopotamus sneeze lightning. Maybe it's happened. This sounds right out of a fantasy thriller. Why? Because it kind of is out of a fantasy thriller. The, the context for Job in ancient Near East the behemoth and the leviathan were well-known metaphors for chaos and evil. And it is so in several passages in Psalms and Isaiah as well. From Egypt to the Canaanite to Mesopotamian cultures, these beasts represent gods or forces who were untamable and unconquerable. Forces that man had to submit to. Forces that man could not overcome. Forces that if you could overcome those things, you would find yourself worshipped as a god. You might have seen ancient drawings like these in textbooks without even realizing their full meaning in ancient Near East culture. What's the point? 
God's last all-persuasive argument to Job is not, I'm stronger than animals. God is saying, this is like my relationship to chaos and evil in those images that you would recognize as chaos and evil. These are images that would be well known in ancient literature. Just like today, if you were to see uh, you know, a picture of a star, you would know that's a winning team. That's America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. That's what that means. Look at chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? The ancient Near East culture would have recognized he's talking about evil here, likely even pointing to the great serpent, the dragon, Satan himself. Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Verse 3, God is purposefully condescending. Will he, the Leviathan, make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Last time I checked, animals don't talk. Will evil and chaos ask you, please, Job? And will they give you pouty eyes? Because Job, when I walk in the room, Job, when I come in the room and there's evil and there's supposed chaos in the world, quote-unquote chaos, they change their tone. They speak softly. Verse 5. This has got to be one of the best pictures. Will you play with him as a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> Job, Job, here's what I do with evil. I take it home. I make it a pet for my girls. They name it. They play house. It's so cute. Evil is basically the same level for me as a rescue dog from the shelter. God puts chaos in a cage and feeds it crackers. God lets evil sit on his finger like a bird plays with it and God goes on and on and on by Leviathan's skin his legs his outer skin his face his teeth his sneezes you know how like a, a lizard can be spiky on its back but really soft on its belly not this one even his belly is like sharp cutting broken pieces of clay what's the point God has Satan and evil on a leash. When he says sit, it sits. And when he says go get him, it goes. This is how the book of Job began. This is what we, reading Job from our perspective, see from the very beginning. This is shocking from the very beginning. And this is as we read through the book of Job and hear all of Job's discussions that we realize they don't know what's going on. Job's friends and Job are philosophizing about justice and righteousness and what God does and who's right and who's wrong, but they don't know the beginning of Job. They don't know what we know where it says, Job 1.12, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has, all that Job has, is in your hand. Only against him, don't stretch out your hand. Later that changes. Job 2.6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he, Job, he is in your hand. His body is in your hand. Just spare his life. Now here's a great problem. When God let out Satan's leash, what happened to Job? Chaldeans destroyed his possessions. Evil people did evil things. 
wind blew Job's house down. Natural disasters, to their perspective, randomly selected him. Job suddenly became physically sick. Unexplainable illness happened to him. God let out the leash and Satan brought these things on Job. God did that. Point being, God does that to us. God does that. God is the ruler yet. In God's wisdom and God's power, He rules even over Satan, over darkness, over evil, and over sin. Yes, even the sins of men, even people's sin. Yes, God is sovereign to execute His good plan through the will and behavior of sinful men. God superintends the will of sinful men, even Satan, to achieve His own good purposes. That's His relationship to sin and evil and darkness and Satan, just like he relates to Leviathan and the behemoth. And don't forget this Christmas that God let out the leash when Jesus was born. Herod, in his attempt to kill Jesus, killed the newborns in Bethlehem, all of which were two years of age and younger. Matthew says that it was to fulfill Scripture hundreds of years old when it happened. Matthew says, then was fulfilled. When those children were killed by Herod, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. God knew it would happen. He said it through His prophet. He let out Herod's Leash And God sent an angel to alert Joseph in a dream. Look at the same passage in Matthew 1. God sends alert to Joseph in a dream to get Jesus out of there. So Joseph took Jesus to Egypt, escaped like Moses. And all those other babies were killed. And Jesus survived that child massacre. But then, this is all how Jesus came to die. Here's how the disciples would remember Jesus made his way to the cross. Acts 4, they're praying for boldness. They say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your God. They're praying to God, gathered together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's sovereignty over evil, even evil men, is how God got him to the cross. To die for your sins, that he might raise from the dead. It's not apart from it. It's not that God is there and He's in an evil world and He's got a kind of plan over here alongside the evil in the world to do some good. God is sovereign over it. He's the ruler of all of it. That's God's power and wisdom to oversee a wicked, evil world and orchestrate it for good. That's the ultimate example 
the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for sinners by the hands of sinful men. The worst thing, and this has been just mind-blowing to me to think over the years, the worst thing that man could have ever done to God, which is deny Him in His perfect image in His Son and kill Him and crucify Him. It's the most unjust thing man has done. And yet God's will supersedes it to be the most wonderful, loving, saving thing God has ever done. Consider how Revelation mentions God's power over Satan. Revelation 2, 20, verse 2 and 3, and he, God, sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Maybe it was an angel, I might be wrong. And threw him in the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Satan, Satan just goes to prison one day <laughs> when it's time. And if you keep reading to the end, God lets him out again. And then God throws him into the fire. And how does that work? I mean, I mean how, how can God be responsible for sin and not be responsible for sin? How can God allow these things to happen and still be good? How can God let the bad guys come and all the storms and, and the sickness when Job was worshiping Him and loving Him and sacrificing to Him and He was blameless and He was an upright man? How can God allow all the terrible and treacherous evil in the world? It's not fair. I mean, if God were so good and if God were so powerful, God would... God would what? What? Have we learned Nothing. What would God do? What would you tell God to do? What would you tell God to do in the world? Here again, Job see God. I know, verse 42, 2-6, through six, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things. That's his response. To Leviathan behemoth. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with my knowledge? He quotes. God, you're right. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you. Make known to me. He quotes. Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I now realize I said some things I didn't understand, God. I assumed some things I didn't understand about what you can do, what you will do, what you are doing. But when I look at you, God, make this your prayer today. Make this your rest today. Make this your, your hope today. God, when I, when I see you through the lens of suffering and evil and Christ and the cross for sin, what else could there be but a sovereign God? Not in competition with evil, but superseding all its even intentions. Repent in humility and trust God's wisdom and power over evil. Maybe today you need to repent of being frustrated and angry at God and be humble by His wisdom and His power, even over evil. Job says, 42 verse 6, I despise myself. I really repent of what I was thinking, God. 
God's wisdom and His power over His evil, over evil, friends, is how you can live in a world where your sins are paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross and by His resurrection and yet continue to endure unspeakable tragedies and losses because God has designs, plans, wisdom, and power that you can't imagine. What this is setting up for is the temptation to find our justification before God and something other than Jesus on the cross for our sins. God, this isn't fair. God, this isn't right. This doesn't make any sense. I don't deserve this. I don't understand why you would do this. No, come to the place where you realize what I, I don't deserve my own life. I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be a lie. I, I've taken my life and I've used it for sin. I've rebelled against God in my heart and my mind and what I deserve. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But you have given me the free gift of life. You've given me the gift of justification through, through Jesus, which I didn't earn and I don't deserve and from that justification and an understanding of God's the theology of God over sin and suffering, you're free. You're free from doubting and wondering if God loves you. When you suffer. You're free from wondering if you have God's favor when all hell is breaking loose in the world. It's a gift. And his designs for evil and suffering in the world. Well, he looks at evil like you look at your cat. Only God has more control over evil than you have over your cat. <laughs> Say it through tears if you must. God, I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Whatever you're doing, no one's going to get in your way. Evil doesn't get in your way. Death doesn't get in your way. No bad guys get in your way. No accusations, true or false, get in your way. No prison time gets in your way. No wife or husband get in your way. No purpose of yours can be thwarted, not even by evil. I have a friend from college, a worship leader in a church just south of Waco in a, in a group chat he let us know maybe close to a year or so ago that he had cancer. And he, he let us know this week that he went to a, a really important meeting with his doctors, the Mayo Clinic in Houston. And he's been on several rounds of chemo and all kinds of treatment and uh, he said it spread to his liver. Sorry. They're going to they're gonna stop the chemo that he's on. In January, they're going to try a procedure to, to burn some of the spots on the liver to try to stop it from spreading there. And after that, start a new, a new group, a new kind of chemo in January. Married, two kids. And we've got the news the other day. My other friend on the chat had the gall to write back. No brother. I'm really sorry to hear about this. We continue to pray for you and your family. I'm hopeful. But in the end, 
I know Jesus is good. And I trust that whatever the outcome is, you're in good hands. A friend with cancer replied, thanks so much, gents. At the end of the day, God is so good and so faithful. You, you, can, you can ask questions ad infinitum. And it might do your soul well to ask a line of questions about God and sovereignty and evil that you haven't asked before. Or maybe ask and you put down. Ask them again. But you'll keep coming to something like this. I asked an unnamed child this week, do you think God's sovereign over everything? Yes. He replied, do you, think, do you think God is sovereign over evil? Yes, they replied. So do you think sin and evil are God's fault? Re- reply was, no, it's just what he chose to happen. Friends, the good news of the Bible is God's going to save you from, not that God's going to save you from all the bad things happening to you. The good news of the Bible is that God will remove the judgment you deserve if you put your faith and hope in Christ who was submitted to death through evil and raised from the dead to pay your debt that you might live forevermore. And along the way to your final salvation in heaven with God, which Job's on his way to, God's the ruler yet. Even over evil. Peter was following Jesus and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was committed his life to following Christ. He confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. First one. At one point, Jesus says to Peter in Luke 23 verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. How Jesus knows such things. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now what did Jesus say? What what did Jesus say? Surely he told Satan no. He he wanted to have you, but but I told him no. Surely God said and he told Satan, no, you you can't sift Peter like wheat. Peter's mine. Surely surely when Peter when excuse me when Satan says he wants a piece of Job's flesh God says no Surely when Satan says he wants to get into your house God says no But what does Jesus actually say to Peter And Peter Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat and here's Jesus answer but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail Instead of praying and asking God to take away every trouble and trial as we have sung this morning, might we simply pray to our Lord, Lord, help my faith not fail. You don't have to admit that the things that are happening to you that are sinful are good. That's not what we're getting at. It's not the kind of question that we're answering. Well, I'll call good things good, and I'll call bad things good, and we'll just flop that around. And then, you know what that helps me? That helps me know that I can do bad things, and God will make it good. Isn't that one? It's like permission to sin. That's not, what, that's not the kind of question that God's answering. He's teaching us 
to leave God's things to God and us to us. Pray, Lord, help my faith not fail. No matter how much you let Satan sift me, help my faith not fail. You are the ruler yet. Let's pray. Oh God, we come, we've sung hard things, we've, we've prayed difficult things, we've preached and heard difficult things from your word. We ask that you would help them hit home. Help us hide them in our heart. Help us rest by faith that you are sovereign, even sovereign over evil in the world. Having looked at how you orchestrate evil around the crucifixion of Christ for the good of our salvation, we admit, we confess, it is your hand who saves us. Even in your wise and powerful ways that we can't imagine. And Father, by this your word, by your Questions to Job and Job's answers, God, may we love all of who you are. And may we do so with our whole heart. No reservations. Questions in our mind, Father, let us entertain questions in our mind. Let us us ask questions. Let us rest in the simple truth that you are the ruler yet. Thank you, God. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.